This recording is a production of Faith Builders Educational Programs. This presentation was recorded at Teachers Week 2014, held at Faith Builders, August 5 through 8. Maintaining enthusiasm in the long haul. And we could look at that in several ways. What, what, we, what do we mean by the long haul? Do we mean that stretch from August to May? which can sometimes seem like a long haul, uh, especially when you get into February and March. And, and then um, typically we end up getting some senioritis about April or May, and it doesn't only pertain to the seniors. It you know, stretches down. They're ready to get out, especially when it's warm, and they're ready to get, get out and the year, you know, have the year over. So that, that can be the long haul. Uh, but what I'm particularly thinking about with the long haul in here is not necessarily that stretch from August to May, but the stretch of maybe a lifetime. And how do you, how do you sustain, how do you do what you do for a long time? How do you keep on doing that? Um, and there are a couple of things that you need to do. And I'm, I'm going to give you a couple things that I think are some of the the killers of enthusiasm, and what I think are the cure, What's, what I think is the cure for that killer, uh, it's not a complete list. You could probably, and I may ask you, so what do you think? What are some of the killers that you recognize or some of the things that you can do to maintain some enthusiasm? First of all, just to get a little bit of an idea of who's here, how many people are teaching, you've taught um, zero to five years, you're somewhere in those first five years? Good, okay. Why do I say good? I'm glad to see a lot of people looking at enthusiasm on the long haul when you're starting because there are some things that you can do right at the beginning that are gonna make it possible for you to stay in it longer than the five years. And so those, those uh, zero to five, it's a good place to start. Not wait till you get frustrated and you start burning out to say, what do I change here so that I can keep on doing this? But get started right away. Uh, what about five to 10? Okay. I'm not sure if I call you long haulers yet or not. <laughs> but you're not new teachers. You're not new teachers and you recognize some of the things that can be stresses for you. You may have recognized some of the things that you've gotten yourself into that have to change if you're gonna keep on. Okay. Uh, 10 to 15, just a couple. Uh, 15 to 20, two, okay. More than 20. Only one other one? <laughs> I am going into, in, uh, what is it, two weeks from today? Two weeks from today, uh, I'll be starting my 30th year. Denise was one of my students, Sarah was one of my students, I've got some former students here. Uh, I am now, for the last 10 years or so, I have been teaching the second generation. And it's pretty interesting when you have children of your students coming in. Uh, sometimes you say, oh yes, they're just, you know, like one of the parents. In some cases I had both parents. Um, I, I can, there was one, one student that when he came in, I couldn't remember his name because I kept wanting to call him his father's name. He looked like his father. He acted like his father. I wanted to call him that name. But after he was there for a year or two, every time I would meet his father, I'd have to think, which one is this? <laughs> because I was getting used to using the son's name, and at this point it was like, uh, let's see, which one is this? Which one am I talking to here? I knew it was the father, but getting the name straight was, was my problem. Anyway, uh, so it's pretty interesting sometimes. And sometimes uh, I, I totally forget that I did have their parents because I think maybe they're, they're so different or, or such a combination of the two that I, I forget that this is second generation, but it is interesting. I'm, I hope that I'm retired by the time the third generation comes. 
<laughs> anyway, uh, what do you think, anything off the top of your head that, that you think would be a killer of enthusiasm or that you've noticed before I give you the couple of them that I have? Lack of enthusiasm on the teacher's part is going to kill enthusiasm all over. Yeah. Too much work. Too much work. Mm -hmm. Focusing on negatives. Focusing on negatives. Okay. Okay. When everything that I do, 24 hours a day, my mind is on school. 24 hours a day, that's all I'm doing. And I sleep just enough to get by. And you, you probably know that it does not work. I mean, I teach high school, so I'm teaching teenagers, and it does not work for the teacher to be as tired as the student on Monday morning. It doesn't work. <laughs> Talk about the teacher not being enthused about what's going on, yeah. It doesn't work very well. Uh, you have to get your rest, but when you only do school, that, that's a killer. You have to do other things, right? Well, I've, I've called all of these killers of enthusiasm. Uh, and I'm only going to give you four. I, I don't know how many there are, probably lots and lots of them. But enthusiasm killer number one, and I don't know that I, I've placed them in order of priority or anything like that, or what's the most common or, or anything. It's just this is the way they made sense to me to list them. And so I'm going to give you four of them. And the first one is a wrong view of your job. <clears throat> if I'm doing something that I think should not take very long, and it takes much longer than I think, it kind of kills my enthusiasm for the job. Okay. Uh, my, my housemate has had a printing business, and she's not very computer savvy at all. Uh, she can do her email, but that's about the extent of it. Uh, and so she has me do all the layout and design for her print shop. And it's not a very busy print shop. Okay. Um, so every once in a while, I've, I've had to do a little bit of layout and design for her. And I've been using the InDesign program, which is not exactly user-friendly if you don't do it very often. And sometimes I have a job that I know should take me five minutes to do it. And I can spend an hour on that job. Long before the hour's up, I'm getting frustrated because I want to be doing something else by then. The same thing happens with teachers sometimes who go into teaching, I'm going to do this for a year or two. And God doesn't bring anything else along. And after five years, and God hasn't opened up any doors for anything else, they get frustrated because they want to be doing something else. I, I didn't think I was going to do this this long. Okay. And so one of, one of the things that I say is that teachers sometimes, beginning teachers don't visualize themselves teaching for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. 30 years. If someone had told me in 1988, 1985, back up a couple years, if someone had told me in 1985 when I graduated from college that I would be teaching at Terry Hill Mennonite High School for the next 30 years, I would have laughed. <laughs> no way. I was never even a student at the same school for more than four years. <laughs> There's nowhere I, would, nowhere I would stay for 30 years. Absolutely not. But that's where, I, that's where I've been. I've been in the same classroom for 28. Did I imagine staying in the same room for 28 years in the same school for 30 years? No. But I didn't start teaching with the idea that I'm going to do this for a year or two. I'm gonna do yeah, a couple years of, of teaching. I started teaching with the idea that I might do this till I retire. 
And I'm close enough now that why would I do anything else now before I'm ready to retire? <laughs> Not ready yet, but. Um, so a wrong view of the job, and I think the cure for that wrong view of your job, number one, I have two things particularly, is to view your job as a ministry. It is not just a job. It is a ministry. Now, I've, I've been there for, I mean, it'll be 30 years with this year. It doesn't mean that I never struggled with this. There was a season somewhere in that, uh, particularly 12 to 15 years, that I had a sense of restlessness and it got that much of a sense of restlessness that I had interviewed at another school and I knew that I had the job if I said yes. It would have meant moving to a new community, it, you know, and all the changes that come with that. But I was very, very seriously considering doing that. There was just kind of a sense of restlessness and it wasn't necessarily getting out of teaching, it was just a feeling of needing something different. And I went, interviewed for this job. They told me that they would hire me if I want the job. Uh, gave, and I said, well, I want some time to think about it. And for the next week or two, I just had no peace whatsoever about going to that job. Just did not have a sense of peace. I liked the school. I liked what I would be teaching. Everything seemed to be okay, except there was just something that wasn't at peace. And I finally said, no, I'm not gonna take it. And I came back to Terry Hill saying, okay, God doesn't really want me to go there. And maybe he doesn't want me to go anywhere else. Maybe this is really where he wants me. And it changed my perception of where I was. It changed that perception of where I was. And I started looking at, the, at it more as a ministry instead of a job. Somewhere in that, it's not that I didn't see it as a ministry before those 10 or 12 years, 10, 12, 15 years, but I started focusing a little bit more on this is where God has called me this is where I am supposed to be. Um, not that he can't change that, but for now, that's where I am. That's my ministry. Uh, and there are many ways, many, many ways. Remember that you are not, you are teaching students. You are not teaching material. Yes, you're teaching the material to the students, but focus on the students. Focus on them. Focus on what you can give to them. There are days when I'm giving a test to one of my classes and I'm hoping to get some things done while they're taking the test. I mean, they're all supposed to be sit, they're all supposed to know this stuff. And so they're supposed to sit at their desks and take the test and everything's gonna be quiet. I can get some other stuff done while they're doing that. And all the way through the test, hands up. And I go answer a question and just about the time I sit down at my desk, another hand. And there are days when I have to remind myself, and I'll walk from my desk to a student's desk saying, I am their servant. <laughs> I am their servant. Because that's what I am. And sometimes it helps us to get a right perspective when we remi remind ourselves that we are doing a service. This is not for us. This is for them. Okay. The second part of it, second part of this, you notice I have a dash there, and I am an English teacher, so I put punctuation where I want it, okay, is that it is a ministry with no predetermined ending date. You're not deciding, I'm going to do this for a year or two. I'm going to do this until this happens. but you're going to let God decide when that ending date is. It's not something that you have in the back of your mind of when this is gonna be. 
if you focus on your students and on their needs, their desires, their drives, their dreams of where they want to go, and if they don't have any dreams, uh, I think, and some students don't. They just kind of go plot along day after day, and they don't really get these dreams of what they want to do and where they want to go. I think sometimes we need to instill some dreams in them, motivate them to go farther than right where they are now. But if you do that, if you focus on your students instead of on yourself, focus on what you're giving to them instead of what you're getting out of it, you'll discover that you will forget about how fast the years are adding up. The only way I can remember how many years I've been there is that I've been there ever since the school opened. I, I joke about it that they found me in the closet when they bought the building, okay, because I've been there ever since it opened. So how, how many years has the school been going? Oh, yeah, that's how many years I'm teaching. You know, it, it's, yeah. Uh, but if you, if you focus on the students and on their needs and on what you can, how you can serve them and what you can give to them, you'll discover that the years add up. Um, and when you reflect on those years, when you look back over those years, you'll discover how full your life has become. How many people have come through your life for a season? They're there for, they may be in your room for a year, they may be in your room for a couple of years. They've come into your life. There's a, there's a poem, and I, I did not think of it until right now, called Bits and Pieces. And the whole poem is about how people come into our lives, and some people are just little bits of our life. We meet them, they go, they're just a little bit. Other people become a piece of our life, much bigger part of our life. But things change, and they're not always there. Uh, and that's kind of how it is with our students. They become bits and pieces of our lives. Uh, they're there for a season, and then they're gone. So the first enthusiasm killer that I have is a wrong view of your job. I think you need to view it as a ministry, not just as a job. And you don't have a date set of when you're going to leave, when you're going to walk out of this job. Um, students ask me sometimes, so how long are you going to teach yet? When are you going to retire? Uh, I'm, I'm getting close enough that they're asking that. Okay? And I say, I don't know. I don't know how long I'm going to do this. At some point, I think God's going to bring to my mind, you know, it's time to retire. It's time to walk out. But not yet. I'm not ready for that yet. I would get bored unless he brings something else, which takes us to another one. Let's go to the second killer of enthusiasm. One of the, one of the killers of enthusiasm that I think exists is boredom. I'm not sure what boredom is. <laughs> I don't know that for the last 30 years I've ever been bored. <laughs> uh, the students tell me, I'm bored. What's that? How can you be bored? There are so many things to do, so many things to see, so many things to read, okay? Uh, they don't like to read. Uh, there are so many things that can get your attention. How can you be bored? Sometimes they are. And I think maybe sometimes some teachers get bored with what they're doing. And if you're bored with what you're doing, you're not going to have much enthusiasm. Uh, suppose this is the tenth time that you're giving this project to your students. And you introduce the project, well, it's time to do this project again. I hope you all enjoy it. Do you think your students are going to get into the project and enjoy it? and learn from it, be enthusiastic about it? Probably not. You have to be enthused about it. You have to be enthusiastic about it. We tend to get bored if we always do the same thing over and over again. So you're teaching basic math facts to second graders again. How interesting can basic math facts be? change some things. 
my cure for boredom is add some variety to your life. Add some variety. Mentioned here about when everything you do is school. You need variety. And you need variety in your school structure. Change some of your projects every year. If you have a good project that works and the students enjoy it and they learn from it and they get into doing the project, keep it. Keep the project. You don't have time to design all new projects every year. It's not gonna happen. You're gonna get frustrated. But you can tweak the project a little bit, change something just a little bit, and try that. And you may just turn a good project into an even better project by just a little change, but it's something different for you. It's not exactly the same thing for you. When you're introducing something that you want your students to do, you're introducing a project for your students, approach it like it was the first time you were doing it. It's the first time you're introducing it. But this time, you have X number of years of experience in how that project works. But your enthusiasm has to be like, this is the first time. This is the first time you're, you're doing it. Because indeed, it is the first time for your students. It is the first time for them. And it has to be that it sounds like it's your first time. You're enthusiastic about this job, this project. You're, you get all excited about this project. This is what you want. This is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to do it. But you've got all these years of experience behind you that you're not going to hit some of those rough spots of, oops, that didn't work very well. Okay. Um, I took it as a compliment one time when one of my students told me that the 10th grade author project that I have my students do every year, which I'm not sure how many years I've been doing it, but it's a long time. Um, when she told me that I introduced the project like it was the first time that I had done it, like they were the first class doing the project. She knew that her older siblings had done it, so she knew it was not the first time. But she said, you know, you introduced it like it was the first time. You were all excited about this project. I don't know how many years I've been doing that project, but I've tweaked it along the way. I found out one, one bad spot. I had them reading, first of all, they read a biography of, they choose an author. I have them read a biography of that author. And I used to have them do a book review on that biography. And then the next thing is that they write a research paper about the author, and then they follow it up by reading a book by that author and a book review on that book. Well, I discovered after a couple of times, <clears throat> about two times of doing it that way, I discovered, you know, this isn't really working because that first book review on the biography ends up being the research paper with maybe just a few things added to it because they get most of their information from the biography. And so I just changed things up a little bit and said, okay, you're going to read, you know, the next year. Ooh, mental note, next year we're going to do it different. Um, and so I started, they, they still read the biography, but now they do a poster with pictures and whatever information about that author. They do the, the poster on the biography. So I know they had to read something of the biography in order to create that poster. And we hang those up in the hall until they start falling down. And then we do the research paper, which is actually writing out in much more detail the information that they put on that poster. And then they read the book by the author and then they do the book review. Uh, and it's a long project. It takes them from January to April to do that whole thing. Uh, but, and it's all related. But I tweaked it a little bit by, by changing you know, something. So add some, add some variety. Uh, beware of the old hat attitude. Okay, I've got this. I know how to do this. Just change things for your sake. 
It may work better for the students, but sometimes you need that change just for you so that you don't just slip into too much of a routine. Before you introduce a project, get yourself in gear for it. Get yourself enthusiastic about it. Build your own enthusiasm for it. Uh, and that enthusiasm is going to rub off on your students. That will rub off on them. Try new things. Uh, I, I usually pick one class. Uh, last year it was the American literature class. This year it's the British literature class. I usually pick one class that I kind of focus on. This is the class that I'm going to make changes to. This is the class that I'm really going to work on improving some things, uh, how I do things. Um, last year I, I, I've always gotten, ever, ever since I've been teaching uh, the Abeka literature, I get frustrated with the American Lit Book because they start out with themes. And for a little bit more than in the first half of the year, it's a, it's a thematic approach to American literature. And then suddenly, about five-eighths of the way through the year, they switch to chronological. Well, American Lit just makes so much more sense doing it chronological all the way through. I, I tell them we study American literature from sea to shining sea, from colonial to contemporary, and it just makes a whole lot more sense to do it chronologically. Well, last year, that was my class that I worked on, and I took everything that was in that American Lit book, put it all in chronological order, and gave the students a list. This is the order we're going to do things. And we might jump from page 437 to 283 to 511 to 13. Don't just assume. If you miss the assignment, don't assume that we're just going to do the next couple pages. Look on this paper, because we're not doing it in the order it is in the book. And we did it chronologically. And at the end of the year, I said, so what do you think? Two years from now, I'm going to be teaching the same class. Should I do it this way, or should I just teach the things in the order that they have it in the book? And one of the students said it so well. She said, well, it was kind of confusing, but it made a lot of sense. <laughs> it was confusing to know where to go next. And to study for a test was confusing, because what they were studying was scattered all over the book. It was everywhere. But the literature itself made more sense. It was easier to grasp what the writing styles were like in different time periods. And so the literature itself made more sense. So which is most important when I go back to it, not this year, but next year, when I go back to that American Lit course, what should I do? Which one is most important? For the literature to make sense or make it easy for them to follow? That's the question that I have to deal with for the next time around. But change some things, and it works. You can't perfect every course in a year's time. You, you can't do it. But you can pick one class, one subject, or if you're teaching multiple grades, you can pick one grade that you're going to focus on that year, and you're going to make some improvements. At the end of the year, it, may, it still may not be perfect. But you're focusing on kind of that one class. I'm, I'm going to really work on this class and making that class better. And the rest of them, after you've been teaching a couple of years, can kind of, at least if they give you the same class assignments, <laughs> Nate's teaching all new classes next year, or almost all new ones, almost all new ones. Uh, you, can kind of, you can kind of let some things kind of float, because I've done this before. I have the things that I used before. You can kind of, you know, kind of float along on some things. But you focus on one, and you're going to change everything that you want to earn, some things, on that one class, and just kind of focus on that, rather than trying to change everything. Rather, it, it just helps me to, to deal with it a little bit more, to focus on, on one. And so I usually have one, one class that I focus on. And after a couple of years, you should have been able to go through everything, every, every class, every grade and made some changes. But you know what's going to happen? By the time you get all the way around and you've made changes to everything, you're going to have more changes. You're going to say, you know, next time I think I want to focus on this one and I'm going to make some changes to this one. But you know that a couple of years ago you did the same thing. You made changes to it before. 
but now you're, you're working on it again. I don't think that that ever changes. It doesn't change in 30 years, maybe 40. I'm not sure. <laughs> but I don't think it ever really changes. I think as teachers, we're always wanting to improve. We're always wanting to make things better, make it easier for the students to grasp, uh, make our job easier, learning how to handle the things that we do. <clears throat> so choose a different one every year. Uh, maybe your uh, revision doesn't mean throwing out everything that you have. It means picking some things in that and making them better. Okay? There is absolutely nothing wrong with keeping everything that you've had from the year before and just making some changes, just tweaking things a little bit here and there. It doesn't have to be revision. does not mean starting over. Uh, keep the good projects and activities. Find things throughout the year that, that can be improved. Make some notes when you're going through things and say, you know, this isn't really working quite the way I thought it would. Make some notes of that because you may not have time to change it right then. But maybe the next summer you can work on that and make some changes. You know, this year I'm going to do it this way. I'm going to try it this way this year. Make some notes because if you don't make the notes, well, your memories might be better than mine. But you're going to forget, most likely. Now, what was that I wanted to change? At least I need to make notes if there are things like that. So keep the good things. If you get bored teaching basic math facts to second graders, like I said, how interesting can basic math facts be? I don't like math, so uh, how interesting can they be? Well, find creative ways to do it. Uh, a friend of mine was teaching elementary grades and her, her students always struggled with learning long division and so when she hit upon this idea that worked really well for her uh, about a week before she would start prepping them for a backwards day and that particular day when they came to class you know, they're gonna have a backwards day you know this particular day she knew it was the day she was going to introduce division but she would get them all geared up and some of them would come to class with their clothes on backwards and she'd have the room all turned around so they're facing the back of the room and they'd start at the last class of the day and move backwards through the, through the day and everything was backwards. And then they got to math class and they had just been doing multiplication. And she'd say, okay, so in multiplication in math, in multiplication, where do we start? Which side do you start on? You start on the you start on the right. And where do you put your answer? At the bottom. Okay? So this is backwards day. So we're going to do our math backwards. So if we start on the right in multiplication, where are we going to start if we're doing it backwards? We're going to start on the left. And where are we going to put our answer? If multiplication, we put it at the bottom. In, in math now, we're going to, when we're doing it backwards, we're going to put it at the top. And she said it helped amazingly to help them to understand long division because they did it backwards. It was just, it's multiplication, but it's backwards. And it worked. So find some interesting, find some interesting ways of teaching some of those basics. She, they were all set up for it because she got the whole day we're doing everything backwards. And she did it because she knew she wanted to teach division that day. She wanted to introduce division that day. Um, so find some, interesting, find some interesting ways. If you are just simply bored teaching second grade, maybe when your school has an opening, you need to move to sixth grade. Not only is the academic level going to be more challenging, but sixth graders are more challenging. Maybe, you, maybe it is time for a switch if you just simply are bored where you are. I would not be a good kindergarten teacher. I, I'm not, yeah, I can't imagine. One of my friends taught kindergarten in a public school. She had 25 kindergartners in the morning and 25 in the afternoon. Every day she had 50 kindergartners. I can't imagine doing anything like that. 
uh, I'm not sure if I would be bored or frustrated or driven crazy, but I can't imagine doing that. Uh, she loved it. I didn't talk to her for a number of years. It was a, a college friend of mine, and I didn't talk to her for a number of years, but uh, she, had, she did that for at least 15 years. Um, 50 kindergartners every day. Anyway, maybe it's time to change. Maybe you would work better at a different level. Always be learning new things yourself. One of the things, one of the things with boredom is that we get stuck in a rut and we don't learn new things. Learn something new. Learn to identify the birds. Uh, this spring or this summer, I hosted a through hiker from the Appalachian Trail. One just overnight, one night, I picked her up. Um, brought her to our house uh, for the night. And she said, I'm from the city. And now I'm out on the trail and I hear all these birds. And she said, first of all, I would, I would say, oh, the birds are really singing this morning. And she said, now I'm saying, that's a different bird from that one. Those are two different kinds of birds. And she said, I wish I knew what kind of birds they are but I never learned the different kinds of birds. And now I wish I knew. Learn what the birds are. Learn different birds. Um, learn plants. Learn another language. Maybe sign language. And when you're learning some of those things, you might be amazed at how many places you can share some of that with your students. And what that will do for them to recognize that learning is not just for their age group and just for the classroom, but it's something that we do all our lives. We learn, we need to learn. Uh, and that helps, that I think helps to keep us from becoming too bored. Even if it doesn't relate to your classroom and what you normally teach, uh, it may help them to recognize that learning is not just for in the classroom or for their age group. And it helps you to keep from getting bored. Let's go to the third one. Third one that I have is one that you may have been thinking about when you came, and that is stress. We can become very stressed, and we can become very stressed very quickly. First, uh, let me just give you an example. We may have principals that expect too much of us. A friend of mine was teaching every period in high school, uh, teaching English, every period in high school, and then was trying to grade all the papers in the evening it doesn't leave any time to do anything other than schoolwork. And that's gonna cause stress. My teacher in seventh grade through ninth grade had 30 some students in her classroom. She taught seven, eight, and nine. And I forget exactly, I think eighth grade, there were 38 of us or something like that in a classroom. We were packed into that room. There was not room in that room to have aisles between all the rows of desks. There were two desks pushed together because there simply was not enough of room to have an aisle between each row of desks. I'm not sure how she did it. Uh, some people, second, some people may have some expectations of us that are a bit high. Uh, some people think that after all, we only work from eight to three, nine months a year, and so you can do all kinds of things. I mean, what else are you going to do? Uh, I was going to college. Uh, I think it was when I was working on, yeah, it was when I was working on my doctorate. One of my sisters was talking to someone, and this lady asked her. Uh, she, they were actually coming down to Florida for my graduation. And, and uh, so my, 
this lady was asking my sister, so why are you going to Florida? And she said, well, because my sister's you know, graduating from, from Pensacola. And she said, oh, so she was going there. Uh, yeah, she was. Well, she may as well. She doesn't have anything else to do. <laughs> my sister thought I would enjoy that. I did. Uh, she wouldn't tell me who it was, and I'm glad she didn't. Uh, but, <laughs> I, you know, I'm single. And I only teach for, you know, months of the year and only from 8 to 3. And, you know, what else would I have to do? Sure. May as well do that. Anyway. So principals sometimes ask too much of us. Other people sometimes ask too much of us. And sometimes we ask too much of ourselves. We add stress. You need to do things outside of school, but don't fill your schedule so full that you don't get the rest that you need. We may set our expectations too high. Not everything that you have your students do has to have careful examination. They need to be, they need some type of accountability for it, but you don't always have to grade everything. And, it, and I'm speaking from an English teacher's perspective. I don't always need to grade everything that my students write for content, for paragraph development, for sentence development, for spelling, for punctuation, grammar usage. I don't need to grade everything they write for everything. If I did, I wouldn't last long. I would burn out because there's no way I can do that. Fourth thing that I think causes stress for us sometimes is that our finances may cause us stress. Mennonite schools generally are not known for paying extremely well. Uh, I'm amazed sometimes at what some teachers can survive on. And the fifth thing is that I, I kind of already mentioned it indirectly, is that our busy social lives can add some stress. We try to do, we need to do things outside of school, but sometimes we try to do too much. And like I said at the beginning, it doesn't work for the teacher to be as tired as the teenagers Monday morning. It does not work. I know for myself, when I'm as tired as they are, my fuse is a little short. And everything bothers me, everything irritates me. And I get so frustrated. And then I think about it, you know what? It's me. It's not them. It's me. So what's the cure for this? What's the cure for stress? I think the cure is to know your limits. And John Koblenz has been talking about that yesterday. He talked about that quite a bit. In knowing your limitations, what are your limitations? And I almost felt like, ooh, should I be keeping this the same way that I planned, or should I make some changes? Because he, uh, yeah. And he said, well, if it's good one time, it's probably good twice. Because some of the things that I have to say are similar. Uh, first of all, I, I mentioned your principal may be expecting too much of you. And if that is the case, there are right ways to appeal. Be honest about how many hours you're spending on schoolwork. Be honest with yourself first about how perfect those lesson plans need to be before you can go with it. If you are a perfectionist, a very detailed person, it doesn't matter how much time you have, you're never going to have it perfect, okay? And you may be spending too much time on getting something perfect before you feel like you're ready to go with it. I have students who deal with that. 
they spend hours and hours and hours on homework. And when their parents complain about it, about how much time they're spending on their homework, I say, well, they don't really need to have everything quite that exact, quite that perfect. And you can often tell, not always, but on the high school level, you can often tell by the handwriting how much time they spend. I had one girl who would rewrite an entire essay, handwrite an entire essay. This was before most of them did it on the computer. She would handwrite an entire essay over again because one line ended up going out beyond the red line on her paper. Okay. It's not necessary. Okay. Think about how, be honest with yourself how much time you have to spend on your lesson plans. Spend enough time, but don't become stressed expecting everything to be perfect okay, before you can use it. <clears throat> be honest with yourself and then be honest with your principal if it is indeed too much and use some tact in speaking to the principal if necessary. Second, understand that many people do not understand. It's a teacher thing you wouldn't understand. Okay. Many people do not understand the work that a teacher has. Too many people are like the first grader in my, in my cousin's classroom. She taught first grade for many years. And one year, one of the board members came in to visit her classroom. And while he was there, he handed her her paycheck. And one of the first graders, curious like first graders are, said, what was that? And she said, oh, well, that, that was my paycheck. And he said, I didn't know you worked somewhere. <laughs> I mean, his mom doesn't get a paycheck for working at home, so, you know. He didn't realize the teacher was working somewhere. So many people don't always understand the work that we have. And they may be expecting more. Uh, you're, you're a teacher, so maybe you should, you know, be teaching Sunday school every Sunday. You do so well, and it, it go, you know, it's easy for you. But can you really do that? Okay. Know your limitations of how much you can do. Other people may expect more of you than what you really can do. Third is don't set, and I talked about this before, don't set your expectations too high. Not everything needs to be graded in detail. Uh, there are many things that you can look at. You can have students assist in some of that accountability, uh, whatever you set up. It doesn't mean that you need to grade everything that gets turned in. Um, I, I try to have my students write an essay a week. I've been working on in the last couple of years, getting them that they are writing every week. They write something for me every week. I have somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 students in a day's time. And if I have them writing something every week, that means I'm going to have 100 essays every week. I mean, it's a rounded number of 100. Can I grade 100 essays a week? No. I can't do it. I know that. So one of the things that I've tried in the last couple of years, one of the things I've tried is having them write. And they'll write a, a rough draft of an essay. The next week, they write a rough draft of an essay. The next week, they write a rough draft of an essay. And maybe at that point, maybe not till the next week, but somewhere in there, I'll say, OK, now, take one of those two, three, or four rough drafts and turn it into a rewritten draft and a final draft. Now, I, I make them accountable for those other rough drafts. They get credit for writing the rough draft. I often don't even read it. I skim it very, very quickly to make sure that it is on the topic and that they haven't stuck mashed potatoes in the middle somewhere, which a student did. Um, 
other little things that I look for, is it, is it adequate length? Did, is it a decent rough draft? If it is, they get credit for it. I go to the second rough draft, you know, 30 seconds. I can kind of see that. They get credit for it. I go to the final draft. They have their rough draft. They have their rewritten draft. I go to the final draft. And the final draft is the one that I actually grade for content, for grammar, whatever. And I don't always grade on everything, even when I'm grading that final thing. What I can do then is kind of scatter things so that, okay, this week I'm collecting papers from the sophomores. Okay, and so I have all the sophomores. I'm reading their essays this week. Uh, the next week I might be collecting them from the freshmen. And so that week I'm, I'm grading those. The next week it might be the lit class. But I'm not hit with 100 essays all in one week. Okay. But they are writing every week. They're writing every week that way. Uh, so find ways like that to not overwhelm yourself with the workload uh, because it's, it's very easy to, to do that. Uh, another one, third one, or fourth one, is your finances. And I talked about that one. Uh, your finances, again, know your limits. You have chosen to be a teacher. And in choosing to be a teacher, you've chosen that there are some things you will not be able to do. And if your friends go on trips that you can't afford to go on, that's okay. If you have friends who have a nicer house than you do, They have things that you don't have. That's okay. Because what you're doing is important. And you have to look at the value, the eternal value of the things that you are doing. You cannot get focused on the material things. I do have the theory, I guess, that it might be good for some school boards to kind of get an idea of what the average income of their patron body is and use that kind of as a guideline for how to pay their teachers. I haven't gotten any boards convinced to do that. <laughs> but I really think it might be a good idea because should they really be expecting their teachers to be living on that low of an economic level below what everybody else is. I'm not sure. Learn how to cut corners. Learn to be okay. Be, and I, I said this before, be honest. If your friends are going on vacation, they're going to a cabin and they're spending how much money to go there, or they're going on a vacation and you can't afford to do it, be honest with them and tell them. Well, I can choose one a year that I can do, and this just isn't the one that I'm going to do. I want to do something else. Um, and, and what I find is that they appreciate that, because then they don't feel like you're just snobbing them, but they understand that, yeah, what the reason you're not going is the finances and not that you just don't want to be with them. Okay. So it's not quite as personal. Um, be honest with them, and then they won't be as offended when you turn down the invitation. Shop Goodwill, shop go yard sales, learn how to cut some corners. Um, not everything in your house has to match. It might be nice if it did, but it doesn't have to. Save for emergencies. Everyone can save something. My brother works with open hands in Haiti and Kenya and India, and some of the poor, according to American standards, some of those very, very poor people are still able to save. In southern Haiti, and this is uh, recent information, in southern Haiti, the total amount saved by the savings groups there from January to March 2014 was equivalent to, in US dollars, it was equivalent to 99,000. 
And you look at Haiti and say, those are poor people. How did they ever accumulate that much money? Just about uh, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, something like that, my brother was in Kenya. And one day he wrote, uh, today we visited the vice chairman of a savings group. This group has 50 members and in nine months has saved the equivalent, and again, the equivalent in US dollars of $3,650. These are poor people. Okay. They can save, not much, but they're saving for their later needs. If they can save, you want to finish it for me? So can we. Okay. We sometimes get the mentality that, uh, well, we're school teachers, we can't save anything. And when we need a new vehicle, we appeal. Oh, we need a new vehicle. Our van just broke down. And it's going to cost so much to fix it and... You know, we really should have a new one. And we expect to be provided. Maybe that's the way your school works. Maybe that's the way your community works. But I think we need to know our limits. And I think we, we can save for some future needs. If your school's not paying enough to live on, you really don't have enough to live on, then maybe you need to appeal to them. And I think if school boards did what I said about the average income, um, I think we'd all get a raise. Let's go to number four. The last one. I'm not going to spend as much time on this one. I better not. It's only five minutes yet. Um, enthusiasm killer number four, and I hate to call it that, but because I did that for all the rest of them, I did on this one too. But I think sometimes... The enthusiasm killer is simply God's timing. And there comes a time when it is time for us to walk out of the classroom. Various reasons, maybe. But I think sometimes it really is the right time for us to walk out. That's not in a moment of frustration. That's not in a moment of stress. But sometimes... God will move, that it is time for us to move on. God may be using your season in the classroom to prepare you for something else, for another classroom, for another area of ministry. Maybe not teaching. Maybe something very, very different. But your experience as a teacher, God doesn't waste experiences. And if he has you in the classroom now, those experiences that you have in the classroom, he is going to use wherever he takes you. Okay. I, I worked uh, in the late 70s, early, very early 80s. Uh, I worked at Christian Light. And I had no idea how much of my experience in the couple of years that I worked there I was going to use in different places later on in my life. I worked with the CLE curriculum when they were just starting CLE curriculum. Okay. How much of that have I used in school? And I haven't taught the CLE curriculum, but my exposure to that had something to do with what I did later on. I was a floater at Christian Light and ran basically every piece of equipment except the four-color press. When my housemate was asked to go to Northern Youth to work as a printer for two years, she knew nothing about printing. And so after she got the phone call, I sat down with her and said, well, these are the steps that printing goes through. <laughs> and she said, oh, I think I could probably learn to do that. And she went to Canada for two years, came home and started her own print shop. Did, I, did God use those experiences? Certainly. Any experiences that you have, God is going to take those and use them. God is going to take them and use them. I think that sometimes God takes away our contentment in one area of our life so that we are ready to move when he wants us to move. 
And that may be that our enthusiasm in our classroom just isn't quite there. We really have to work on it to make it seem like we are enthused about what we're doing. We really have to work on it. And it may be that God is preparing you to go somewhere else. You may have thought that you're going to teach for the rest of your career. You may not be bored. You may not be stressed. You may continue to challenge yourself and give yourself variety and continue to learn and broaden your horizons and you're not burned out, but suddenly, or maybe gradually, you realize that you just don't have the enthusiasm that you did before. And after 20 years of teaching, you realize it's time to change because your heart just isn't in the teaching anymore. It's been drawn into something else. It's been drawn into another ministry of some sort. And so the cure that I have for that is follow God's leading wherever God is taking you. You will never be satisfied or effective doing something that is not where God wants you to be. There does come a time to quit teaching, whether it's because God wants you to do something else or because it's time for you to retire, move into a supporting role rather than right in the trenches, you know, helping, helping teachers instead of being right there doing it. But the important thing is to be where God wants you to be. He may be preparing you for a different kind of service. Um, I will say yes to all the good things coming my way. The end of teaching may not be a bad thing at some point because there may be more good things coming your way that God is bringing into your life. So in conclusion, there are many things that we can do to maintain enthusiasm. Uh, I think it's important to actively pursue those things and go after those things. We need to identify our limits, our, our time limits, our ability limits, our financial limits, and we need to set the, pri the parameters accordingly, according to what those limits are. If we don't do that, we're going to burn out. We're not going to last. And we'll quickly be ready to move on to something else that's less stressful, less demanding. But if we do that, we're not going to be as fulfilled as being where God wants us to be. For more free resources that support teaching and learning, visit the docforlearning.org.